This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program on this Thanksgiving Day. One thing about having a show that airs on Thursday is you can count on uh, airing every Thanksgiving. And even though this is a national holiday here in the United States of America and a a smattering of other places, Norfolk Island, I believe, also celebrates Thanksgiving. But even though it is a holiday, somebody has to work. Somebody has to work in the hospitals of America, in the police stations of America, in various capacities that keep society going, even on holidays. So we like to make it a tradition to salute those people and thank all of you for your service. We hope you're listening as you're waiting for the radio call or, you know, the beeper to go off, whatever. Thank you for being on the job. We traditionally like to keep things light on Thanksgiving. It it is the holidays. A bunch of stuff that would normally be aired on today's show. We're just going to let let go. However, today also uh, marks a very grim anniversary, it being the 22nd of November, It was 55 years ago today that uh, the President of the United States was murdered. We mentioned last week that we needed to bring Vince back this week to talk about that subject, so we will do that in our second half of today's program. But back to keeping things light. Let's take today to salute somebody who had a lot to do with food and keeping food safe. There's a book out currently by Deborah Bloom called The Poison Squad, The subject is the Department of Agriculture's chief chemist, Harvey Washington Wiley. He conducted experiments back in 1902 showing that food additives thought to be benign, such as formaldehyde, salicylic acid, and borax, were in fact harmful to humans. He then became an uncompromising crusader for consumer protection, although he was often vilified as an alarmist and an enemy of American business. Book reviews currently circulating um, about this book, The Poison Squad, uh, say that it makes a convincing case that Wiley deserves our lasting gratitude. We do have the option in this program to seek out authors and bring them on to talk about their books. We've done that on many, many occasions. This might be a worthy subject to do that about. We'll think about that. We do want to report with some sadness, however, that the book we forward promoted many weeks ago a spy named Orphan, the enigma of Donald McLean, uh, will not result in a Radio Parallax interview with author Roland Phillips. According to the publicist, Mr. Phillips has now moved on to his next volume and uh, is not doing interviews anymore. A Radio Parallax, unlike other programs, uh, reads the book before we actually interview the author. And so yours truly uh, did plow through 440 pages of this book and uh, I've got no author to show for it. But I guess I do want to summarize it for you. Which would be that Donald McLean was one of the most treacherous spies of the Cold War era and a key member of the infamous Cambridge Five spy ring. Now, of those Cambridge Five, you, you may have heard of some of their names. Kim Philby is a fairly infamous or famous name in espionage along with Guy Burgess, with whom Donald McLean defected to the USSR back in 1950. But although Philby is the most famous name, the author made a pretty good case in this book that Donald McLean was just a factory of of espionage. 
uh, because he was in a very enviable position. He was had access to virtually all of the classified data going back and forth between the U.S. and the U.K. during World War II, and he pretty much passed all of it along to Joseph Stalin. Stalin, for example, knew all about the Manhattan Project when the Vice President of the United States, Harry Truman, was kept in the dark. Anyway, it's an interesting saga, and uh, you could do worse than to pick up a copy of A Spy Named Orphan. But back to food, which is, I think, an appropriate topic for every Thanksgiving day as people sit down to feast. The Week magazine had a little blurb under Author of the Week about Marion Nestle. Marion Nestle is a prominent public nutritionist watchdog, but uh, it's noted that she's surprisingly easygoing about her rules for eating. This is according to Alex Beggs writing in bonappetit.com. Nestle is the author of Food Politics. She has a new book out titled Unsavory Truth that details how the food industry has created confusion around what should be one of the simpler parts of life. Her advice to you, dear listener, is don't eat too much, make sure you have vegetables, and don't eat too much junk food. To which she adds, I mean, really, that's all there is to it. They note that Nestle herself doesn't eat anything until 11 a.m., happily ignoring innumerable messages about breakfast being the most important meal of the day. She says, quote, Most of the research on why breakfast matters is done by breakfast cereal companies. Big surprise. Similarly noted the week, she doesn't favor so-called superfoods because she's discovered the claims for them typically derive from studies funded by the foods producers. It's marketing research, not science, says Marion Nestle. And we enjoy every so often quoting from Parade Magazine, the insert that still appears in newspapers if you read newspapers, and we hope you do because we do. At any rate, Marilyn Vos-Savant has a long-running column. She once scored something like 200 on an IQ test, as is considered one of the smartest people in the world. Maybe she is. She does write a pretty good column, from which I will now quote. Someone asked Marilyn, this may seem like a silly question, but I'll bet a huge number of your readers would love to know the answer. All microwave ovens have a popcorn button, but every popcorn box instructs you not to use it. Why? Said Marilyn in response. Hey, I love questions like this. The answer is that many popcorn buttons are simply timers, and presetting a time is not a good way to produce the best popcorn. Many varieties are marketed, and their optimal popping time differs. You should follow the instructions on the box about listening to the individual pops. If you don't, you may wind up with under-popped corn, not fluffy and too many kernels of scorched popcorn. So there you have it. And still another food-related item. This is Thanksgiving. According to QZ.com, Americans love their rotisserie chickens. We bought 625 million of the slow-roasted birds in 2017. Costco, which alone sold 60 million rotisserie chickens last year, is building its own 414-acre chicken processing plant to maintain its ultra-cheap $4.99 price. I don't mind admitting that yours truly does have a rotisserie chicken set aside for this Thanksgiving Day, among other items, of course. I do want to note, although maybe I shouldn't, uh, I guess I will, that I I had every intention of getting a uh, commercial ham. The Honey Baked Corporation, uh, in my experience, has made a good product in the past, but it has been my sorry discovery that unless you order a Honey Baked Ham, I guess, I don't know, six months in advance, you're in a world of hurt when you go to pick it up. I thought I was pretty smart if you ordered one two days in advance. Sure, the line won't be the crush you experience on Thanksgiving Day proper, right? 
Well, as I drove over to check out the possibility of picking up my fine piece of pork, Mr. Merlin and I observed a line going around the building, around the block. I've seen shorter lines at popular movie openings. Anyway, I have to confess, I gave up. And I guess someone else will be eating my ham today. All right, and one more item related to food, or I guess in this case, food and drink. We must note the obituary of Tom Jago. We love the quote, although we're probably going to butcher it at this point, uh, which we've used many times in this program, along the lines of the fact that the news consists of informing people that Lord Jones is dead, informing people that didn't ever know that Lord Jones was alive. I certainly never knew that Tom Jago was alive, bumped up against the products that he produced. According to his obituary in 1973, Tom Jago was working as head of product development at International Distillers and Vintners in London, where he was asked to solve a problem. His bosses wanted him to devise a new drink that would take the advantage of Irish tax incentives for exports. Jago and two colleagues got to work mixing Irish whiskey with cream from a cork milk factory owned by IDV's parent company. The combination initially tasted awful, so the trio added a dash of sugar and powdered chocolate, improving the flavor. Still, a focus group rejected the dessert-like drink as girly and reminiscent of indigestion medicine. But, sensing the potential of an alcoholic drink that didn't taste of alcohol, Jago hid the research and launched Bailey's Irish Cream in 1974. His instincts evidently were right. Some 7 million cases of Bailey's were sold worldwide last year and nearly double the sales of any other liqueur. I must confess, I don't like Bailey's Irish Cream. And I'm sorry that compared to, say, Kahlua, which I do like a lot, um, Bailey's outstrips it. Sells a lot more. I don't know. Who said life was fair? But actually, we're not done with the, with the story of Tom Jago. After creating Bailey's, he took a failing coconut-flavored rum called Coco Rico from apartheid South Africa, then a pariah nation, slapped a Caribbean-inspired label on it, and renamed it Malibu. Bottling was moved to England, and then Barbados. Malibu is now the world's second most popular liqueur after Bailey's. So there you go. Odds are this holiday season you're going to be drinking something that was produced by Mr. Tom Jago. May he rest in peace. By the way, Mr. McGillan does like Malibu. And Bailey's. Uh, well, he likes Malibu. And Bailey's. Well, there's just no accounting for taste. Well, we always think science topics are uppers and probably appropriate for a holiday-based program. So let's jump into this one from the week. Two new planets have been found drifting alone in our galaxy. One is among the smallest such objects we have seen, and it seems diminutive free-floating worlds may actually outnumber stars in the Milky Way. That's if you do the math on this. Exoplanets are usually spotted from the light dip seen as they pass in front of their stars or how they shift the, the spectrum of the star they're orbiting. This does not work for planets without stars. Instead, anyone looking for wandering worlds must rely on a phenomenon called gravitational microlensing. This occurs when a planet's gravity behaves like a lens, warping and magnifying the light of a distant star behind it. Researchers in Poland have used this method to find two new worlds. One is either about twice or 20, a little up a range there, about twice or 20 times the mass of Jupiter, depending on how distant it is. 
The other is either about 2.3 or 23 times Earth's mass. Based on the low number of Earth mass worlds like this we have found and how difficult they are to spot, the team calculated there might be more of these small exile planets than stars in our galaxy. Wow. Some researchers think that these worlds could be habitable. Even if their skies are always dark, they might be kept warm by radioactive decay in their interiors and by a blanket-like atmosphere. It's possible. I know that as we st- discover all these exoplanets and you know how things work in other star systems, a lot of mathematicians have concluded that lots of planets, as they're formed, would get tossed out of their, their solar systems. <laughs> if these guys are right, they're getting tossed out right and left. And yes, we do hope in 2019 they can, um, they can nail this Planet X thing down. You know, is there something orbiting out there past Pluto that's influencing these Kuiper Belt objects? The math seems to point in the direction uh, the fact that there is such an object and we just haven't found it yet. And if my memory serves me correctly, in January of, the, of next year, we're going to get another pass from the New Horizons spacecraft of a Kuiper Belt object out past Pluto. Looking forward to seeing the pictures from that. We'll have to bring somebody on from, from the Planetary Society. Our good friends over there are going to be on the case, and I'm sure they'll have a thing or two to say about it. We do hope that you listen to Planetary Radio with the host, Matt Kaplan. We've had Matt on several times, and have had lots of people from Planetary Radio, including the president of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye, and some of their great writing staff, uh, Bruce Betts and Emily Lakdawalla. And to come crashing back down to Earth, we would note in what is a remarkable feat of swimming that a 33-year-old Englishman has swum around Great Britain. Ross Edgley conquered the entire 1,791-mile coastline, which is nuts on the one hand. This required him to swim up to 12 hours a day for 157 days. And you thought swimming the English Channel was a big deal. Well, let's take a moment to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for lungs, with the news that fewer Americans now smoke cigarettes than at any point since record-keeping on that issue began. Only 14% of adults reported smoking in 2017, down from 15.5% the year before and 42.4% back in 1965. Well, we're glad to see that the war on that drug, at least, has been successful. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the phrase, long time no see, with the news that Colorado State University has asked students to stop using that greeting because it may offend Asian Americans. Now, linguists say the phrase may derive either from Native American dialects or from Mandarin. Student Katerina Liebe said administrators told her such, quote, non-inclusive 
unquote, language was to be avoided because, quote, even if the world isn't good, you should be good, unquote. Now, we've been unable to confirm this, but we have heard that the dental clinic at Colorado State University is no longer taking appointments from Chinese-American students between the hours of 2 and 3. We also further understand that the eye clinic has requested that there be a complete omission of any references to Lincoln Continentals. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for taking personal responsibility after Chicago Bears kicker Cody Parkey blamed God for the fact that he missed two field goals and two extra points during this week's game. Parkey said, My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ makes no mistakes. For whatever reason, that was the day I was supposed to have. For our part, Radio Parallax has never uncovered any evidence that Jesus Christ is taking a personal interest in Chicago Bears football. But on the other hand, I do have a few Bear fans among my friends, and I'm sure they would disagree. I'd like to also thank at this point listener Joe Lane, who recommended to yours truly that he check out the program, I guess it's on uh, Netflix or HBO, one of those, uh, a new show titled Alpha House. It's produced by Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury fame. And uh, I have to say, I, I, I do think it's pretty amusing. It apparently is loosely based on a confederation of Republican senators that were at least uh, hanging out together or may or may not have been living together in the same house. I'm not sure. It's a good premise. And we do hope you notice the fact that Bill Gates said that if you want to understand what's going on in Silicon Valley, you should watch Silicon Valley. They apparently are having some trouble at the show deciding whether the, whether the program will go on for one more season or two more seasons, which will change the writing for what they're going to show us next. And we hope that they can work that out. And we do hope they find a way to bring Ehrlich Bachman back. Anyway, speaking of Doonesbury, we did like the uh, strip in last Sunday's paper, talking about smartphone addiction. Trudeau suggested that to curb your craving for all that eye candy, you might switch your screen to a grayscale. In the strip, all of a sudden, it goes from color to black and white, and one of the characters goes, what happened? Everything went boring. I don't know if that would work, but it might be worth a try. I see all these people walking around like zombies holding their phone. We've all seen this, haven't we, dear listener? Perhaps we all are even doing it ourselves. And speaking of the dark side of tech, which we love to do in this program because, well, it's about time somebody did, we would refer you to the New Yorker article by Jane Mayer, I believe in last week's issue, titled, New Evidence Emerges of Steve Bannon and Cambridge Analytica's Role in Brexit. Interesting piece by Jane Mayer. We're continuing to read Dark Money. and hope to have a report on that for you in the weeks to come. It's a milestone book. The piece does note that Nigel Farage, former leader of the far-right Eurosceptic UK Independence Party, which has been an ally of Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, had also reportedly stirred the interest of investigators in both the US and the UK after he was spotted in 2017 leading, leaving the Ecuadorian embassy in London in which Julian Assange has taken refuge. Assange's media platform WikiLeaks published many of the emails stolen by Russia from the Hillary Clinton campaign during the 2016 election season. I know some of you out there are very skeptical about Russia involved in the 2016 election, and I'm not sure why you are. We'll have more to say about that in the future. 
In Dark Money, Jane Mayer takes quite a swipe at um, these so-called libertarians, these so-called politically conservative uh, individuals who want the government to leave us all alone, except the possibility of getting a huge tax break or government subsidy. They're all for those if they personally benefit. We'd like to refer to the briefing section of the week, November 2nd edition, that was about welfare for team owners. The subheadline was, do taxpayers benefit from spending billions to subsidize sports stadiums? Hello, Sacramento. The data suggests otherwise. The piece notes that studies consistently find no discernible positive relationship between sports facility construction and local economic development, income growth, or job creation. The biggest myth, says economists, is that stadiums generate new revenue for cities by luring people to spend money in and around ballparks. Well, they looked at it and decided that fans who spend, say, $150 at a ball game are spending money they'd otherwise shell out for movies, restaurants, shows, or concerts. So there's no net increase in dollars spent in the community or sales taxes collected. It's hard for me to listen to this argument being served up for why downtown Sacramento would benefit from this any idiotic stadium we built for the Kings. I know it caused me personally to cease going downtown, to go to the restaurants that used to be there, go to the bookstores that used to be in the shopping center there, go buy clothes in the stores that are no longer down there. And I sure as hell I'm never going to go see a Kings game. But let's stop talking about that. This briefing section should be reviewed in further detail, but not today. Now, as far as we know here at Radio Parallax, uh, Donald Trump did pardon the White House turkey. Apparently, just like he's pardoning Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who, as far as we can see, uh, received less punishment than did reporter Jim Acosta. But let's not dwell on that. We're still sad here at Radio Parallax to note the passing of William Goldman. But I'm grateful for the fact that we talked quite a bit about him in the last couple of months. Yours truly thought that uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade was just a barn burner of a great read. But uh, although I purchased The Princess Bride, I don't know, a couple months ago, I still haven't read it. William Goldman certainly had a way with words. The line he used to summarize the story of Watergate, which was follow the money, never appeared in in any of the reporting about the Watergate case, but his summary of it seems so appropriate that it has now entered the English language. People describing this or that political intrigue will throw out that line, follow the money, because, well, that, that is key to so much. Jane Mayer has certainly been following that advice when she talks about what's going on in dark money, a subject, as I say, we'll return to. But another memorable Goldmanism surfaced recently when after Donald Trump blamed the press for all of America's ills and had a very uh, testy tweet, his, his spokesperson, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, defended him as being presidential. She'd never seen anybody being more presidential. <laughs> this prompted Chris Cuomo to comment upon Huckabee's remark and saying, well, as would Inigo Montoya, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Although I wish, I wish Chris Cuomo would have used, you know, a Spanish accent when he did it. Anyway, Goldman is so good, I think we, we could do worse in the time we have left to us in this segment than quote from him. Let's pick up our well-worn copy of Adventures in the Screen Trade and look inside, shall we? To quote from Goldman's chapter on studio executives, 
The Go decision is the ultimate importance of the studio executive. They are responsible for what gets up there on the silver screen. Compounding their problem of no job security in the decision-making process is, is the single most important fact, perhaps, of the entire movie industry, which in cap letters is, nobody knows anything. Said Goldman, not one person in the entire motion picture field knows for certain what's going to work. Every time out, it's a guess. And if you're lucky, an educated one. They don't know when the movie's finished. B.J. Thomas's people, after the first sneak of Butch Cassidy, were upset about their clients getting involved with the song Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. One of them was heard to say more than once, B.J. really hurt himself with this one. The initial preview of Star was such a success that Richard Zanuck canceled any further previews and sent a wire to his father, Daryl, that said, We're home. Better than Sound of Music. The Sound of Music was then the most popular movie in history. Star went on to become the Edsel of 20th Century Fox. No matter how they re-advertised it or changed the logo or the title, no one came. And Richard Zanuck has as keen to mind about commercial films as anyone. They don't know when the movie is starting to shoot either. David Brown, Zanuck's partner, had said, We didn't know whether Jaws would work, but we didn't have any doubts about the island. It had to be a smash. Everything worked. The screenplay worked. Every actor we sent it to said yes. I didn't know until a few days after we opened that I was in a bookstore and I ran to Lou Wasserman and said, how are we doing? And he said, David, they don't want to see the picture. They don't want to see the picture. Maybe the most chilling phrase in the industry. Said Goldman, now if the best people around don't know it sneaks and they don't know during shooting, you better believe that executives don't know when they're trying to give a thumbs up or thumbs down. They're trying to predict public taste three years ahead, and it's just not possible. Obviously, I'm asking you to take my word on this, and there's no reason, really, that you should, because pictures such as Raiders of the Lost Ark probably come to mind, which I grant was an unusual film. Raiders is the number four film in history, as this is being written. I don't remember any movie that had such power going in. Probably you all know this, but did you know that Raiders of the Lost Ark was offered to every single studio in town, and they all turned it down? All except Paramount. And why did Paramount say yes? Because nobody knows anything. And why did all the other studios say no? Because nobody knows anything. And why did Universal, the mightiest studio of all, pass on Star Wars? Because nobody, nobody, not now, not ever, knows the least damn thing about what is or isn't going to work at the box office. The late William Goldman, one of our favorites. Anyway, we need to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. In our second half today, we're going to resume our talk with Vince Palomara about the Secret Service and some of the curious things that happened on November 22nd, 1963. Stay tuned.